0: The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, we continue now in our series in Acts, and so keep your Bibles open, and uh, those who are watching online, we want to especially welcome you and invite you to come join us in person. Uh, It's good to gather together as the people of God. Let's pray as we ask the Lord for help. Father in heaven, we're longing for the name of Jesus to be greatly exalted in our midst. So cause the name of Christ to shine forth with power and glory so that we would see more of Christ, that we would hear his voice, and that we would leave changed and transformed. Do this for the sake of your name and for your glory, and for our joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Gossip and rumors can spread like a wildfire, can they not? This happened back in 2008. CNN had this little website called iReport, and it was a user-generated Kind of news site where anyone could sign up and then post what they deemed was worthy of news. And so someone in 2008 reported that Apple CEO Steve Jobs had suffered a serious heart attack. And before Apple could say anything to the contrary, Apple's stock plummeted and lost about 10% before rebounding. So misinformation spreads at lightning speeds. It spreads like a California wildfire, and and it's more difficult to put out just like a California wildfire. Gossip spreads quickly, but correcting rumors is often much more difficult, and the damage often is already done. That's precisely what we see this morning in Acts 21 and 22 with the situation with Paul. Paul has been accused of being anti-Jew, anti-temple, and anti-law. And and the people of Jerusalem are whipped up into a frenzy, and they've cried out, away with him! They want to execute this man based on rumors. Uh, the rumors have been flying back and forth. I, I heard that that he hates his own Jewish people. And then someone else chimes in and says, no, no, no. I, I heard that he even brought uncircumcised Gentiles into the temple. And then someone else says, I saw him eating bacon-wrapped shrimp. <laughs> and, and so the people get more and more angry, more and more fired up and, and This is where we left off in Acts 21 last week. The people were crying out in verse 28 of Acts 21, men of Israel, help. So so it's the situation so dire. This man is so destructive. He's going to undermine everything that is important to us as Jews. That they say, this is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he has brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. So misinformation is spreading like a massive wildfire. What is Paul to do? Well, let me pose a question to you. What would you do in such a situation if you were being unjustly accused? Well, Paul responds but not by defending himself. He could have went point by point with their accusations and says, you know, you you saw Trophimus and and the Ephesian, and I didn't actually bring him in. He waited outside when we went into the temple. He He doesn't do that. He doesn't go through all those details. What he does is he defends his faith. He takes this opportunity to shine the light of Christ and to preach Jesus. Paul was not trying to make himself look good or to get out of being arrested or or kind of regain his reputation or to provide a detailed rebuttal against all the accusations that are being leveled against him. But Paul instead uses this opportunity to preach and proclaim the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that's our main point this morning be ready as believers to defend the faith by declaring the undeniable work of Jesus. Be ready to defend the faith by declaring the undeniable work of Jesus. Every believer who has beheld the glory of Jesus Christ, who has heard his voice, seen his glory, should be ready to especially in the midst of hostility or maybe false accusations, to be ready to speak of how Jesus has changed and transformed us. So my aim this morning is to strengthen our resolve to stand up for Jesus, especially in the midst of hostility, and to care less when we're personally maligned. So, are we prepared to share how Jesus has transformed us? Are we prepared to share... How Jesus meets us in the midst of our weakness and frailty. Are we prepared when we have a hostile audience to defend the faith and to share what Christ has done? And in many ways, I want us to recover and remember and be reminded of our testimonies that we just heard this morning in the baptisms how did God go about saving you? And in the same way Paul retells his testimony, we should be ready to have our testimony on our lips. So this passage has sort of three sections. We we get a little bit of an introduction, Paul's eagerness to speak in verses 37 to 40, and then sort of the, the meat of the passage is in chapter 22, verses 1 through 21, we get Paul's testimony of Jesus, and then we get the response to Paul's testimony in 22 to 29, and we're going to look and walk through that this morning. Now, this account, Paul's defense in verses 1 through 22, is the first of five that Paul will give in these latter chapters of Acts. He defends himself before the mob in Jerusalem here in chapter 22. In chapter 23, he's going to defend himself before the Jewish council. And then he's going to defend himself in chapter 24 before Felix, before Festus in chapter 25, and then Agrippa in chapter 26. And as we saw already, Paul is being accused of being anti-Jew, anti-law, and anti-temple. And these are the three things that are most treasured among the Jewish community. This would be like a Christian saying, I I hate celebrating Good Friday, Easter, and Christmas. We would say, what? Or or a Minnesotan saying they don't like Juicy Lucy burgers, Honeycrisp apples, and hot dish. We would say, are you even Minnesotan? This introduction sets the stage for Paul's defense before the mob. Notice back with me in verse 30 of chapter 21, he was already dragged out of the temple he was already severely beaten in verse 32, and now he's bound with two chains in verse 33. So probably his hands and his feet are being bound, and the, the crowd is so angry, so worked up, that they thought that he, wa- he was going to be torn piece by piece. So the soldiers had to pick up Paul. It says that in verse 35 of chapter 21. The soldiers actually had to pick up Paul and, and bring him out. And, and what does Paul do? He could have been tempted in that moment to say, you know, uh, I could use a night in jail rather than being beaten. Uh, I I could use a little bit of a break. Maybe he would shrink back thinking, these people are not going to receive me. They're not going to listen to my testimony, but what does he do instead? He begs for an opportunity to address the mob. He speaks to the Greek, speaks Greek to the tribune, clarifying he's not the Egyptian insurrectionist that led a revolt, and now he speaks to the mob. And what we learn in that is that Paul has dual citizenship. He says that he's a citizen of no obscure city, meaning that he's a citizen of the Greek city of Tarsus. And then later we read that he's also a Roman citizen. But Paul doesn't call upon either of these citizenships at this point, but instead his ambition is singular. Singular. I want to be able to testify to the person and work of Jesus before my fellow countrymen. That's my singular aim. So even if unjust and and wrong accusations are being leveled at me, give me an opportunity to proclaim Christ. And that's precisely what he does. So that leads us to the second section, Paul's testimony of Jesus in verses 1 through 21. And in this section, we're going to break it up into three parts. We get Paul's zeal and upbringing in verses 1 through 5, and then we get 6 through 16, which is really his encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road, which we already read earlier in Acts 9, and then we get sort of his mission to the Gentiles in 17 to 21. So we're going to look at these three within Paul's address. So Paul's upbringing and zeal. So the mob is enraged with Paul because he's seen as a traitor to his own people. You're supposed to be a good Jew, and yet you're preaching Jesus. You're you're preaching Jesus to the Gentiles. You're eating with them. And so he's being accused of turning his back on his countrymen, on his heritage, on his religion, on his culture. And, And so how does Paul respond? First, he addresses them as brothers and fathers in verse 1 of 22. And then he speaks to them in the Hebrew language or Hebrew dialect, which was probably Aramaic, the main language of the Jews of Palestine at that time. And what he's trying to establish right at the outset is I'm as much of a Jew as any of you. You guys are my brothers and my fathers. And so now listen up. I'm going to break it down for you in, in speaking in Aramaic. And then he continues. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. Paul is making it clear that he is, in fact, a Jew. He learned the law under Gamaliel, a well-known and famous rabbi. Anyone would have known the name at that time. It's a little bit like saying, I learned how to preach from John Piper, or I learned how to study the Old Testament from Doug Moo, and... D.A. Carson and Greg Beale, or or whatever it may be. Paul's training is in strict conformity to the Mosaic law. This is to establish that Paul is not anti-Jew and he's not anti-law. His background, his upbringing is as Jewish as any of the people he's addressing. And then he goes on to describe his zealousness for God. He says he persecuted the sect called The Way. He was complicit in Stephen's murder. I bound up and delivered men and women to prison. He was as zealous as they come. He was patriotic and nationalistic. He was a Pharisee interacting with the synagogue leaders as they themselves can testify. What Paul is trying to establish is the background for what he's going to say. If ever there was a good Jew, I am exhibit A. Raised in all the right ways. Brought up in this city, in Jerusalem. Trained under the most famous of rabbis. Strict conformity to the law. More zealous than any of you. I was complicit in the murder of the very first martyr of what we call the way. I am a good Jew. That's what he's trying to establish. Because that's key in the accusations being made against him. Now, consider the irony. Paul says, I used to bind people in chains. I used to, I went up to Damascus specifically for that purpose, to bring them back down, and now I've traded places with them. I am the one bound in chains right now. I'm the one that just got beaten. I'm the one that's being punished. And, And the question that's pregnant in every single mind that's listening to him is, why would you trade places? What gives, Paul? Why would you do that? You were on the right side of history, according to all the Jews watching. Why would you trade places in this moment? And that leads us to the second section. Why would Paul go from persecuting Jesus to being persecuted for Jesus? And that leads us to verses 6 through 16, Paul's encounter with Jesus. Paul recounts his conversion on the Damascus road when Jesus breaks in and confronts him. Now, we're not going to walk through this point by point because we're already familiar with it. We got it in greater detail earlier in the series in Acts chapter 9, but Paul retells his conversion to reveal one thing. This is not my doing. I'm not responsible for this. Jesus did this. That's what he wants them to see. He makes it clear that this is the sovereign power of Jesus breaking in. I didn't one day wake up and said, you know what? It would be really good if I switch teams. That will just keep everyone on their heels. Maybe I'll get a more comfortable life. Maybe I'll make a little bit more money. No, he's saying Jesus did this. The Lord of heaven and earth, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, the Christ, has broken in and transformed me. And just as an aside, isn't that each and every single one of our stories this morning, if we're following Jesus? That we didn't pick him, we weren't clever, we weren't wise, but Jesus Christ broke in and transformed us by his grace. That is a miracle. It ought to land on us as a miracle, whether it's been six years, six months, or 66 years. It should land on us with fresh awe that we did not pick him, but he chose us. That we were running a hundred miles an hour in the opposite direction. Whether we were openly flaunting his law or trying to keep it according to our own strength, and yet he saved us. So uh, look with me. Verse 6, Paul says he sees a light from heaven at noon. This was surprising to me. He says, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. This is actually the first time I, I, I noticed it. I probably should have noticed it earlier. It's noon, the noonday sun. It's already as bright as it can be. The sun is out. And he says, an even brighter light comes and blinds me so that everyone sees what is this blinding light? Well, I didn't come up with it, Paul says. It's from heaven. It's a divine light that makes the noonday sun look dim. And then in verse 7, he hears an audible voice that says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So the voice knows his name, his intentions, and his actions. This is not Paul's doing. This is not a clever prank from one of his friends. This is the God of heaven and earth who is speaking to him from heaven. And then the voice identifies itself. Verse 8, I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting. This is striking. It's not an angel. It's not just God the Father. But this is Jesus himself confronting Saul. And he's hearing the voice of and speaking with the resurrected Christ. And he says, why are you persecuting me? Your persecution of my disciples is persecuting me. You're opposing me. And then Paul says in verse 10, what shall I do? And the voice tells him, go to Damascus, wait, and, and you're going to hear instructions. And, and that sets up when Ananias comes to him, all the instructions of Ananias are going to be like the words of Jesus himself, because Ananias gets a divine revelation from Jesus as well. What's the point in all of this? What's the point in Paul retelling his testimony? Paul's point is that this is God's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Jesus confronted me and set me straight. I was not clever. I did not decide maybe I'll I'll just change teams. Uh, Let me see. Maybe, Maybe I'll just try something else. Life's not hard enough. Let me go get persecuted by my fellow countrymen. No, he says, God is the one who broke in and confronted me, stopped me in my tracks, blinded me so that I would have no other way to go but then to follow him. And I've been sent by God so that all of you would not miss the point of the Old Testament scriptures, the trajectory of the scriptures, that they're all about Jesus. It's all pointing to the person and the work of Jesus. And so this morning, one of the things that we want to be reminded of that is kind of Christianity 101 be reminded that it's all about Jesus. Everything that we do, the worship, the songs, the prayers, the preaching, the programs, the events, it's all about magnifying the work and the person of Jesus. The reason we send people overseas is so that Jesus would get glory for himself. That Jesus has broken into our world and confronted us and transformed us and gathered us to be his church. It's all about Christ. Is that our heartbeat this morning? That it's all about Jesus, everything we do. Because sometimes it can get a little bit tiring. Life just gets fatiguing. And we think, is it really worth it? Or, I don't know if I want to love my neighbors. Or, I'm a little afraid of welcoming Afghan refugees. Or, I I don't want to share the gospel with my workplace. I think that's going to expose me to ridicule or worse. And yet, Paul reminds us, all of life is about the risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ. So that in the midst of false accusations, hostility, beatings, sure imprisonment, Paul stands up and says, I'm not going to mainly defend myself. I'm mainly going to speak about what Jesus has done in my life in transforming me. Are we ready to do that? That in the midst of whatever comes, that we're able to stand up, not mainly to defend ourselves, but to say, look how Jesus has been so good to save me by his grace. Verses 12 to 16, he he describes Ananias coming to him. He describes Ananias in verse 12 as a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there. And then he says, at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. So this healing act confirms that Ananias is a messenger from God. Says that he's seen the righteous one, hearing his voice, and that he's going to be a witness of all that he has seen and heard verses 14 and 15, and then he says, rise and be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. So, so get up, call upon the name of Jesus to be saved, and then be baptized, which signifies that your sins have been washed, that you've been cleansed by Jesus. So, what are we to see or learn from Paul's defense? Paul readily defends the faith by declaring the undeniable work of of Jesus. He doesn't shy away from his background, his culture, his heritage. That's all part of the story. But he says, this is what Jesus has done. It's undeniable. It's unmistakable. Jesus broke in to my life. I didn't pick this life. I didn't decide to go this way. Paul's transformation is not by human hands, not by clever marketing, not by manipulation tactics not by the lure of money or prosperity. Paul is transformed because Jesus reached out, grabbed him by the lapels or by the robe, shook him and said, you're mine. And for all of us who have been called by God, that's our story as well. And the awe of what has transpired should land on us again. So when we consider our own testimony, when was the last time you shared it with someone who didn't know Jesus? Sometimes Christians say, oh, well, I don't really have a great one. You know, I didn't get saved out of this massive car crash or drugs and alcohol or a life of promiscuity. And, you know, it just isn't that interesting. Baloney. Every." salvation, every conversion, is a miracle of God's grace. Don't inoculate yourself to the greatest news in all the world. And when we tell that story, do we tell it in such a way that makes us look good? I was so smart when I read the Bible, I understood it. Or do we tell it in such a way that God gets the glory, that we say, Jesus was so undeniable, so undeniable that he took me by the shirt, and grabbed me and said, you're mine. We're saved not because we're smart or wise or good-looking, but because Jesus saved us by his grace. Let me just illustrate this for a moment. Uh, We went camping maybe a few weeks ago with our small group, and it was supposed to be one of those nights where the the shooting stars were going to be amazing. And so that first night, I remember leaning back in the chair and just looking up. And for a moment, I just said, wow. And it's not like I've not seen the stars before. They come out every night. I I see them every night, right? We we all see them every night. And and they're more brilliant and brighter when when there's not all the city lights. But for a moment, I just said, wow. If I knew all that went into causing these stars to burn, just so that we could get a little light show, just so that they would sparkle in the sky, just so that we would stand amazed at God's creation. I I would probably worship all the more than I do. And yet so often we go about our day like we're in the city, where we don't see the stars in their full brilliance. And so it is with our salvation, with our testimony of how God saved us and rescued us and transformed us. We miss the glory. But I would encourage you in this moment, lean back, look into the sky, not literally, and behold the glory of how God saved each and every single one of us by his grace. That's a miracle. Paul, in the midst of false accusations, hostility, takes that moment to say, this is the one thing I want them to see, the undeniable work of Jesus. Paul goes on, 17 to 21, he talks about Paul's mission. This is Paul's mission to the Gentiles. This is the third section of Paul's kind of defense, and and he explains why he ministers to Gentiles. At the heart of the charge uh, against Paul is that he's a traitor to his Jewish countrymen, and and he says, again, he tells it in such a way, he says, God did this. Jesus did this. I was in a trance. I was praying at the temple. I'm not anti-temple. I was at the temple. I was praying in the temple. That's what good Jews do, And it was in that moment that jesus met me again in the temple as I was praying what good jews would be doing And he told me to go to the gentiles and and I protested. I said no, 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 no! i'm going to stay here They're going to believe me because they saw how I lived And again, jesus says no, no, no Get out of jerusalem. They're not going to believe you go to the gentiles And at this moment, the mob was done. They shout him down, and they call for his execution. This account shows, proves, that Paul's not anti-temple, but he's pro-Jesus. He's pro-Jesus. He was at the temple. Paul isn't anti-Jew. But something greater than Jewish identity has come. Something greater than the Old Testament law has come. Something greater than the temple has come, and that is Jesus Christ the Lord. And I think that's a reminder for us this morning. Does Jesus take precedent over everything else? We might be pro-life, pro-whatever-else, lots of good things. But are we first and foremost pro-Jesus? Does Jesus take precedent over our culture and our tradition? Does Jesus take precedent over our heritage and history? Does Jesus take precedent over being Americans, or Minnesotans, or Republicans, or Democrats, or conservatives, or liberals? Does Jesus take precedent over our education, our employment, our ethnicity, or our family history? Paul reminds us by his example that there's only room for one on the throne of our hearts, and it needs to be Jesus. So Paul is showing I was a good Jew. I am a good Jew in many ways. And Judaism and Jesus points me to the Messiah, the Christ. The mob shuts down Paul, and it concludes with Paul's conversation with the soldier and the tribune in our final section. This is 22 to 29. In verse 22, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. These are striking words. Kill him. We don't want any part of him because he's willing to go to the Gentiles. They listened to him up to this point, but now he's going to the Gentiles with, with this Jesus fellow. We want nothing to do with him. Kill him. Sadly, this reveals that they hate Paul. They hate probably the Gentiles, but in reality, they hate Jesus, and this will be their downfall. Their perspective is, how dare you betray Judaism? And yet, in rejecting Paul, they have rejected Jesus. Their words will serve as evidence in the courtroom of God that they rejected the good news of the gospel that was preached to them by Paul. And this is a reminder for us, for all Christians, that being persecuted is not unusual, but it's normal. Persecution will be normal expected. The story concludes with the Tribune, wanting to know why everyone hates Paul, because Paul spoke Aramaic, probably, and the Tribune maybe doesn't understand it, and so he's going to stretch him out and and grab a whip, a cord with, you know, multiple uh, spiky ends with glass and bones and shards, and, and, and whip him. And Paul stretched out, and then he says to the centurion in verse 25, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And this unfolds with Paul basically saying, well, I'm a Roman citizen. And the tribune says, well, me too, but I bought mine. And Paul says, I was one by birth, which means he's socially of a greater, higher standing. And so what's the point of this kind of anticlimactic conclusion? I think first it reveals that Paul's words, unfortunately, were largely ineffective in convincing the Jews to believe. They want Paul dead. And it's a reminder that though we may testify to the saving work of Jesus, people may not receive that word from us. I imagine right now in Afghanistan there are many bold and courageous disciples of Jesus who will testify to their faith. And in some cases, we're praying for some Saul-like conversions. But in other cases, it will be the last thing that they say. Is it still worth it? Is it still worth it to stand up to Jesus in those moments? Absolutely. He's worth it. It's worth it. Jesus is more than worth it. We speak the name of Jesus, not for the approval of crowds, not for the accolades of the mobs, but we do it in obedience to Jesus. So even if it seems largely ineffective to the li- in the lives of those around you, we continue as believers in Jesus to be ready to give a defense for the hope that lies within us. We do it in obedience to Christ. Paul doesn't claim his citizenship to escape the earlier mob and beating, but he does here now, which sets the stage for his next opportunity to defend the faith before the chief priests and the council. So, he asserts his legal privileges, his, even if his ultimate citizenship is to Christ, and I think that's a, just a reminder again that, yes, we, are, we, we, we all have dual citizenship. We're citizens of an earthly kingdom, and we're citizens of a heavenly kingdom, And we need to be wise and thoughtful and shrewd when we leverage the rights and privileges of our earthly kingdom and yet never undermining our allegiance to the heavenly kingdom. And I think, I imagine, in my lifetime and for my kids, that's just going to get a little bit more complicated. When do we say, it might be right in your eyes, but I'm going to stand on the word of God. I'm going to listen to Jesus. It it just may get a little bit more difficult, and that's okay. We have the scriptures that will help us navigate each and every single one of those instances when they come. When we want to leverage our earthly citizenship and say, wait, is it legal for you to do that? And at other times, to say, I'll gladly get beaten for the name of Jesus. I'll gladly get thrown in prison for the name of Jesus. Only that the gospel might go forth in greater power. So, as we conclude, let me draw out a number of applications for us. Paul goes to great lengths to defend the faith and explain why he, a zealous, a well-trained Jew, has become a disciple of Jesus. And the reason is because Jesus is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah and the christ and he wants his fellow countrymen to to believe to come to accept him and to reject jesus would be disastrous and so for some of us this morning the question isn't are you willing to share how christ has transformed you but the question is has jesus transformed you are you willing are you ready to surrender to Jesus. Perhaps you're on the Damascus road. Perhaps you're among the mobs. Perhaps you're living your own way, going about life in the way that you think would be best. And my prayer for you this morning is that Jesus would shine a bright light so that you would see his glory and hear his voice, that it would be so unmistakable, it would be so undeniable that he's piercing your heart right now, that you would hear his voice with such crystal clarity, and that you would surrender your life to Jesus. We don't do open baptisms, you know, if you just came up after the service and we'd baptize you. But part of me is almost tempted to do things like that for that specific purpose. Today is the day of salvation. You too, if you're not following him, can surrender to the Lord of heaven and earth. He wants to get your attention this morning. He wants to confront you with all of his glory and power and love and to know That there's hope. You can live with hope. Hope in a resurrection. Hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hope that your sins can be forgiven. How will you respond this morning? For those of us who are disciples of Christ, I I have three applications. First, be ready to share about how Jesus saved you. Be ready to share how Jesus has saved you. Sometimes we think, we said this already, you know, I don't have this amazing story. And yet every single one of our stories is a stunning miracle. A glorious display of God's power and grace in saving us. Whether you were 6 or 26 or 66 or 96, God has written his story on our lives with his blood. And I would say this. This has been a hard year for many. And so you don't just have to go all the way back and say, he saved me out of this, but you can say, this is how he's ministering to me and meeting me right now. Where, there, where I might otherwise succumb to fear and insecurity, Jesus has broken in. Where, there, where I might otherwise have succumbed in, in these days to self-righteousness or self-sufficiency, God has met me. Whether I might have turned to self-medication, or self-loathing, or just basking in my selfishness, God has met me. Hasn't he? Hasn't he met us every single day of our lives? Hasn't he been faithful to, to pull us back from the cliff and to say, you're mine. You're my beloved child. I love you. I care for you. Jesus meets each and every single one of us by breaking into our world, confronting us and showing us his glory and love. Number two, be ready to share about Jesus in the midst of hostility. Most Christians around the world, especially in the global South, Asia, Middle East, Latin America, they, they follow Jesus at some personal cost, usually significant personal cost. I don't know how many of you heard the, the story of many Afghan Christians in this last generation chose willingly to change their legal identification cards from Muslim to Christian, knowing the cost, especially now, that they've gotten letters. We, we know who you are. They have a database. And they said, but we're Christians. We want to do it for the next generation. If not us, who? Who? Be ready to share about Jesus in the midst of hostility. We stand up for Jesus not when it's acceptable, not when it's easy, not when it's nice. We stand up for Jesus at all times, even if things look hostile around us or the blowing cultural winds are against us. We need to be ready not to dilute or reinterpret the scriptures to be more acceptable, Our love and good deeds, hopefully, will be our calling card, but there will be a moment, even then, when those are insufficient and they will cry away with them. And even in those moments, we would say, it's so worth it to share the name of Jesus. He has been our Savior. He has seen us through. Will he not see us through all the way to the end? Number three, be reminded of the hope of Jesus Christ. Be reminded of the great hope that we have that will never fail, never disappoint, and that is always for us. Paul said earlier to the Ephesians, but I count count my life of any value or precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul's hope is not in the very preservation of his own life. His hope is in Jesus. That's why he has a gospel ambition to make him known. His hope is not in this life, but in the life to come and the surpassing joy of knowing Christ. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is what? Fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We will never get less. By following Jesus. We will never be disappointed in following Jesus. He will never let us down when we follow Jesus. The righteous will never, never, never be put to shame. Do you believe that this morning? He says it to us. He promises it to us. He's given us a whole book that just spells it out. Front to back. Back to front. Again and again in a multitude of ways, to say, be faithful unto death, and then I will give you the crown of life. That's the crown we want to long for. Place your hope once again in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus cleanses our past by washing us clean. He meets us in the present by setting our eyes on him so that we would hear his voice, see his glory, and he prepares our future. He has a room ready, waiting for us. He has set the table so that we will feast around his throne. And then we can sing. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, you are worthy of all the glory and all the honor and all of the praise. Amen. Let's pray. Father, set our minds and hearts on Christ. Blind us with the beautiful vision of the Savior. Don't let us leave unchanged, having not heard his voice, having not seen his glory. But once again, remind us, stir up in us fresh awe because of what Christ